Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It sure is great to be back on the air. And you know, I know it has been at least almost a week since I was on the air last with you guys. And I know many of you were wondering, when exactly would Kirk Monroe come back on the air to podcast? Well, that time has come now, just shy of a week. And as I've said before, and I can say again right here, Life doesn't always revolve around podcasting. I certainly do enjoy podcasting, but I know that life has lots of other um, things uh, that can take place at any uh, given moment, or just in general, but that's not always a bad thing. I must say that uh, my wife and I did have a good Easter um, holiday, and I hope all of you, uh, regardless of where you live in the world, did have um, a great Easter holiday. Um, I know that my wife and I um, got to uh, be a part of something uh, very special. Um, Her brother got married, and it was really great to be a part of uh, celebrating uh, those festivities. And um, it was just, despite the rain, um, it didn't stop us all from having um, a great time and celebrating uh, my wife's um, brother's uh, special day. And, um, And as she has told me, and that uh, she couldn't have asked for um, that uh, she was that she's uh, very happy um, for her brother and his uh, wife. Um, they're a very nice couple, but uh, you know it's it's fun. It, it's uh, how do I say it? It's uh, great to be at those uh, kinds of events uh, because it does bring people together, but it brings them together for the right reasons, and um, it's it's just um, that's the way it it should be. Now, I will say this. Um, I'm sure some of you are wondering, um, given that I'm back on the air, where do we go from here? In other words, where where does our journey take us? You know, we've talked about a lot of uh, unique uh, topics. Uh, I know we've talked about various um, topics pertaining to the American Revolutionary War. We've uh, talked about some shipwrecks. We've talked about some uh, historic people in general. I think it's fair to say we've uh, talked about um, a variety of unique, um, fascinating American history from colonial era to the present day. Well, the good news is that um, our journey will still continue um, in the proper direction based upon um, based upon the title, or I should say the title of my uh, podcast link being uh, that of... Um, from colonial history era to the present. But I will say that our um, next uh, series, and believe it or not, folks, this is um, this uh, series will be uh, the 30th uh, book that I have uh, done since uh, June of 2020. I'm not uh, flaunting it, but I do find it to be a very uh, unique uh, milestone, to say the least. So for those of you who have been with me since June of 2020, um, thank you for um, being such ardent supporters. For those of you who've been new uh, within the last uh, six months to a year, um, thank you for doing your part to be supportive. And uh, and I certainly uh, look forward to having you all uh, continue in being a part of this uh, unique uh, journey, a unique journey where we're, we are learning um, historical information that is relevant and also being able to put it into um 
into uh, greater uh, settings where we can uh, not only learn what is what is being shared, but that you all, my listeners, can be able to um, expand beyond your horizons, which is all the more important. So I will tell you this much: we will be um, we will be going into the uh, post-revolutionary war era. And I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, when you mean by post-revolutionary war era, is that like right around the time when the American Revolutionary War ended, given with the Treaty of Paris in 1783? Not exactly. We will actually be going into the 19th century. Uh, now, are we going to be going into uh, the Civil War, or are we going to be right before the Civil War? Well, I can tell you this much, folks. We will be um, just before the Civil War. So I'm sure many of you are wondering, okay, well, if we're going just before the Civil War, then what, then what is there out there to discuss that is of um, the utmost relevant importance? Well, how about we uh, get the show on the road, folks? And by doing so, I will tell you all where we're going to be going. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get the show on the road. So here we go to our prologue, or I should say our introduction, for our next upcoming uh, podcast uh, book topic series. Whenever the year of 1841 gets mentioned, the first thoughts which tend to run in people's minds pertains to the death of William Henry Harrison, the United States' ninth president, given he was the first to die in office. And I think that is fair to say that for many people, uh, that is usually the first thing that does come to their mind when they hear the work of the year 1841. Believe it or not, that's how it was for me um, for quite some time up until I uh, read this uh, up until I uh, read uh, this book uh, that we will be uh, discussing in our uh, book topic uh, series. And I promise you all I will get to that title before uh, we are all said and done with in terms of uh, before um, this uh, segment uh, is over. Now, 1841, from a presidential perspective standpoint, marked something unique. Given three presidents held America's top-level position, three. Normally, shouldn't it be two? That's what I would think, but it just so happened in 1841, there was a first, folks. There were actually three uh, presidents uh, serving um, in the highest um, position in the land um, in the United States in 1841. So let's try to find out um, a little bit more about this uh, unique first. Well, Martin Van Buren, uh, who was uh, who began his uh, term as president in on March fourth of eighteen thirty seven, um, turned over the reins to uh, newly elected William Henry Harrison on March fourth of eighteen forty one. Well, for William Henry Harrison, his time in office is still to this day considered to be the shortest. He was only in office, folks for less than five weeks. So his time in office was from March 4th to April 4th of 1841. That's 32 days, folks. 
And he died from, um, and, and in case some of you are wondering, how did he die? Well, he didn't die from assassination, because we all know Abraham Lincoln was the first to die in uh, the high office via assassination. But William Henry Harrison uh, died from um, contracting pneumonia. And he was, he was just shy of 70, but he uh, died as a result of having uh, contracted pneumonia. So when he dies in April, on April 4th of 1841, that, in, that leads us with uh, John Tyler, William Henry Harrison's vice president, whom succeeded to the presidency post on April the 4th at age 51, which in 1841, folks, made John Tyler the youngest to assume America's highest office. In 1841, the United States was approaching 65 years of age. The presidents whom were mentioned above, or whom I just mentioned, have some unique things which ought to be shared. Martin Van Buren, being the eighth president, was born in 1782. He was the first president to be born under the new United States. I know many of you all would find that shocking, but it is true. As for William Henry Harrison, being our ninth president, he was born in 1773. It just so happens, folks, it just so happens, folks, I should say, that William Henry Harrison was the last president to be born within Britain's 13 North American colonies as a British subject to the crown. So think about it, folks. Eight of the first nine presidents were born as subjects to the British crown. So that means, that means folks, you have to go back to George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, and Andrew Jackson, until you get to that first, being with uh, Martin Van Buren. Then, uh, for John Tyler, the 10th president, he was born in 1790, three years after delegates came together in May of 1787 to embark on a new scheme for how America ought to be governed going forward in the present and the future. When John Tyler was born in 1790, there was uh, something uh, very unique that Congress did, folks. Well, the year before, in 1789, uh, George Washington uh, not only had become America's first president, but the capital uh, was in New York, or I should say New York City. In 1790, Congress enacted legislation that uh, relocated the government from New York to Philadelphia, thanks to a legislative measure known as the Residency Act, which established Philadelphia as America's temporary capital location spot until 1800, being 10 years later, when once again the seat of America's official capital relocated, but this time it would become permanent as the new designated spot got agreed to via a compromise. Well, all right, well, what compromise would have uh, been would have been in, in this scenario? Well, Alexander Hamilton uh, wanted to uh, charter a national bank. The only way the compromise could go through is if the Southern delegates um, got their way to have the capital be relocated along um, a line where it wasn't 
it wasn't right in the heart of the uh, of the uh, of the north, and it wasn't right in the heart of the south. But it was halfway between um, the furthest point north and the halfway point between the furthest point southward, kind of like what we might think of as the Mason-Dixon line. So, with this Residency Act, Alexander Hamilton and the Federalists got the um, got the uh, National Bank of the United States, and the, and the opposition got um, what they wanted in getting the uh, capital relocated um, to what we now into the location that we now know as Washington D.C. Folks. So basically, it was a via it was via compromise between North and South. And how ironic that usually when we think of North and South, we think of that um, horrible civil war that uh, almost tore America apart. But we have to be reminded that. The terms North and South uh, were used quite frequently well before um, that uh, infamous Civil War happened. Now, America in 1841 was comprised of 26 states. That's a pretty uh, decent-sized number. I mean, shoot, you know, there was we started out with 13 uh, North, 13 uh, colonies um, that were part of uh, the Greater British Empire, and what do you know? Uh, from the time George Washington became president, uh, there were three states admitted to the Union under his uh, presidency, being uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Vermont. And then when Thomas Jefferson was president, o- Ohio was admitted to the Union, uh, being the 17th state. So it is fair to say that um, that from 1789 to 1841, we've got uh, 13 more states added to the Union. Thirteen of those um, 26 states were non-slaveholding states from as far north as Maine, which was at one time, believe it or not, folks, part of Massachusetts. We do have to be reminded, folks, that Maine was part of Massachusetts, and it remained that way up until uh, 1820 when Maine wanted to become its own independent state. And Congress uh, that same year enacted the Missouri Compromise come March of 1820 that enabled Maine to become um, a free state and uh, Missouri a slave state. And I'm not trying to get into anything political, folks. I'm just uh, you know telling you all some basic uh, general facts of how we are getting to where we are in 1841. I'm sure some of you are wondering uh, where in the world... Are, what exactly are we going to be talking about? Well, the irony to it, folks, is that um, it's a journey. But I promise you, before this journey is over tonight in this uh, prologue, you all will know exactly where we'll be. That onto itself could be considered a work of art. Now, besides the uh, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, with regards to Maine being a slave, Maine being a free state, pardon me, and that was the furthest uh, northern free. That was the furthest northern non-slaveholding state, being Maine. But if you want to go uh, as far west in terms of finding a non-slaveholding state, how about go to Illinois, which happened to be part of the Northwest Territory, the United States' oldest territory. And folks, remember in 1787, um, for those of you who were with me when we talked about uh, signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Constitution, there was a fellow delegate from Massachusetts named Rufus King 
who um, proposed that, uh, that slavery was to be outlawed in the Northwest Territory, well, he prevailed. So when we think of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and even um, Minnesota, uh, Northeast Minnesota, or I should say all of Minnesota, slavery was outlawed. So Illinois um, achieved uh, statehood um, status in the year of 1818. Four years before 1841, a unique first did occur. Michigan was admitted into the Union, and once Michigan was admitted into the Union in 1837, America as a nation had an even distribution of, of states labeled as free versus slaveholding. I will say that um, you know some of the compromises that were made prior to um, the Civil War from ever happening, they may not have been the prettiest of compromises, but we could also say it's a blessing that those compromises on one hand could have been made or, or were able to be made because it did prevent um, a civil war from happening sooner. And of course, I will admit that it, it, that it is a shame that a civil war did happen. But at the same time, it, it is good to know that there, was, um, that there were uh, politicians, whether we like it or not, who were able to... Um, make uh, compromises to thwart off the worst-case scenario given at the time when those uh, compromises were enacted. And again, I'm not trying to get into anything political, folks. I'm just uh, trying to uh, tell you all the facts and the information um, based upon when those um, important decisions were made per the uh, times that they uh, took place. And now, from 1776 to 1841, America as a nation had grown significantly from a population standpoint. In 1776, roughly 2.5 million people were residing within the newly established United States, and by 1812, the year which Congress had declared war on England, and yes, folks, Congress, well, the United States was at war with England again. Uh, this time it was more about economic independence, but in 1812, the United States' population was between seven and seven and a half million. We go to 1840. The 1840 census saw America's population reach just over 17 million, an increase of nearly 33% from when the previous census had been taken 10 years prior in 1830. Well, you talk about an increase over around one-third, folks in terms of population. Now, considering just how much America's population had changed during her first 65 years of existence as an independent nation, so did her means of transporting goods, including people, change also, which required establishing settlements, or I should say territory or territories, where people from within the original 13 colonies, including those on the outside emigrated westward to, to help enhance America's national security. Well, what do you mean by this national security? Well, we have um, Indians, Indian nations along the Northwest Territory that are uh, fighting to preserve their way of life, and they will do anything to keep out, in their eyes, the outsiders uh, being um, people 
living um, along the eastern seaboard whom are wanting to come westward to um, establish not just so much a new life, but to help America expand. And with expansion, uh, that also is going to lead to conflict where um, Indian tribes run the risk of losing their uh, livelihood. Not just their livelihood, but their, um, but their place in an uh, ever-changing world, given that they were there first and now they are all of a sudden once again having to uh, fight for survival, knowing that the biggest fear were the Europeans, or what they would know as the white people, I'm not trying to sound sensitive, folks, but we have to remember this is uh, a fight for uh, survival where an old way of life, you know, was trying to be preserved and trying to keep out the new way of life. So isn't it fair to say, folks, that even in a post-revolutionary war world, even 65 years later, we're still dealing with uh, issues that um, that are either going to benefit one group of people, but they may not benefit other um parties. Prior to 1841, America's uh, first big step behind increasing the flow of goods and people on an eastern westward route came through the Erie Canal, which happened to be the first navigable waterway connecting the Atlantic Ocean, which met up at the Hudson River's entrance to ending at Lake Erie. Although construction first began back on July 4, 1817 in Rome, New York, outside of Syracuse, the Erie Canal first began operating four years later on May 17, 1821, only to become finally completed four years afterwards, come October 26, 1825. It is fair to say that the Erie Canal was the nation's first superhighway. You know, think about it, folks, no Interstate 95, no U.S. 301 or U.S. 1. We have a waterway that is really considered to be America's first superhighway, the Erie Canal. Shortly after the Erie Canal had been finally uh, completed, it became very evident just how much costs behind moving goods and people turned out. For starters, the average mule might have handled up to 250 pounds worth of uh, freight. But a team of mules hauling flat-bottom vessels, or I should say barges, could carry freight 10,000 pounds and greater, or I should say beyond, along a towpath. Towpath, for those of you who don't know what that refers to, a towpath is a road or a trail on the bank of a canal or a river. Towpaths helped modify impractical situations where sailing wasn't feasible due to tunnels and bridges or let alone unfavorable winds. Without the, and without the towpaths, journeys by water, they still would have met their share of challenges, big and small, but thanks to greater overall works brought about through canal navigation, Canal transportation alone drastically cut the costs well over 50%, and in many instances, they probably cut the costs between 75% and just shy of almost 100%. Not only did the Erie Canal enable New York City to stand above all the other major U.S. port cities at the time the canal itself was officially completed, 
the linkage from the Hudson River um, to the east to Lake Erie to the west helped spur tremendous growth to inland canal cities from Albany. And this is all in New York here, folks. Albany being the capital, Utica, Rome, cities outside of Syracuse, including Syracuse herself, Rochester, Buffalo, other cities in Rochester like uh, Pittsford and Fairport, and, and another city in uh, Buffalo um, being that of Lockport, um, which was another um, city that uh, benefited heavily from the presence of the Erie Canal. The primary um, aspect of the, or the primary features behind the Erie Canal in terms of the directions they were going east and west, going east more often than not meant transporting goods, whereas going west more often than not meant transporting people. Now, it's not to say that we can still say that if um, going east could have also meant transporting people. Think about it. You want to take a day trip somewhere? You want to go from, say, Lockport to Rochester or Rochester to um, Syracuse? Why not hop on the, hop on the canal? Um, in the same, you know, going uh, east, you could also bring goods with you as well. So go, regardless of which direction you're going, the canal is benefiting everyone involved. Given the Erie Canal connected uh, the Atlantic Ocean uh, to the Hudson River, including the Great Lakes via Lake Erie, commercial passengers, commercial passenger shipping, pardon me, became the new and exciting norm. And why not? What if I told you prior to the Erie Canal's final phases of completion in 1825 saw a first happen? What kind of a first would have happened? It pertained to a um, steamboat. It pertained to a particular steamboat uh, known as... This is a unique name, folks. I never heard of this steamboat before, but uh, she existed only for a few years, but her name was known as Walk in the Water. Not a walk in the sun or a walk in the clouds, but walk in the water. She was built in 1818 and became the first of her kind. She was a, a side-wheel uh, steamboat. But besides being a side-wheel steamboat, she did something very unique in that she was the first steamboat to navigate not only Lake Erie, but to also navigate Lake Huron in Michigan. You know, Huron and Michigan are um, connected to one another. Huron and Erie are connected to one another. It's fair to say that perhaps Walk in the Water did not miss out on anything. She navigated the Great Lakes. She navigated Great Lakes waters on her route from Buffalo, New York, to Detroit, Michigan, vice versa. And she began doing so on August the twenty-fifth of eighteen eighteen, until November first, eighteen twenty-one, when she ran aground in Buffalo, due to a severe gale force storm where the winds exceeded 40 miles an hour. So any time, folks, you have a gale storm, that's when the winds are going to run between 34 or 40 miles an hour. 
once you break um, 40 miles an hour, you go from gale storm to a strong gale. The strong gale winds went from anywhere from 41 to 47 miles an hour, but it might be fair to say for Sadly, for a walk in the water, she could have uh, been enduring strong gale winds that would have exceeded probably well over 50 mile an hour winds. Given walk in the water had achieved a remarkable first by transporting people and supplies around Lakes Erie, Huron, and Michigan, one legend has it where walk in the water's name derived from an Indian's view of a steamboat. Okay. What? How would the this? Uh, how would the Indians, or how would a particular Indian, if he or she um, saw this um, steamship or a uh, steamboat? Pardon me. How do you think they would have viewed uh, the steamboat? They would have viewed it with some curiosity, because they had never seen a steamboat before. You know, the steamboats came about in the late 18th century. So this is something very revolutionary. Indians folks had been uh, navigating the waters regardless of whether they, uh, their settlements were on the Great Lakes or uh, settlements that were along the Virginia's Chesapeake Bay. They've all, the Indian tribes have been, have been navigating the waters via canoe. So in other words, they don't have any motor on their canoes to get uh, going. They've got uh, paddles or oars to row from one end to another. So, for um, from an Indian's view of a steamboat, in this case, uh, for walk in the waters, the legend has it where walk in the waters name derived from an Indian's view of a steamboat moving, in quotations, uh, walking. Walking on the water without any sails. So, in other words, this uh, steamboat was navigating the water without having to rely upon um, winds. And prior to the steamboat coming about, folks, uh, canoes or any kind of um, boat had to rely, rely upon favorable winds to get from point A to point B. So the steamboats, folks, don't need to rely on favorable winds. That's why the, the Indians see, the Indians saw walk in the water as um, as a um, a vessel walking along the waters, but doing so without any sails. Despite the sudden yet unexpected short lifespan walk in the water had, along three of the five Great Lakes, being Michigan, Huron, and Erie, her achievements enabled other steamboats, including steamships, which preceded their predecessors, being the steamboats, to grow in larger sizes, including total number of passengers where more accommodations could be met. You know, when I think of perhaps better accommodations, perhaps having more people come aboard um, the vessels, you know, in, in other words, expanding to where you can go from, say, originally having only 100 people now to, say, having just shy or above 300. Maybe when we start having um, vessels that can transport 300 people, folks, we might as well be thinking in the early 19th century, for example, as mini Titanics. 
Without an inland waterway like the Erie Canal, there wouldn't have been any other faster alternative routes in getting to places such as Chicago, Illinois, folks, which was officially incorporated as, as a city in 1837, the year... Um, Michigan became the 26th state admitted into the Union. And, you know, there is someone we can thank, folks, for Inland Waterway. For those of you who were with me when we talked about Wedding, uh, the, the book uh, the book series uh, almost two years ago, Wedding of the Waters, or right around two years ago, I should say. Hard to believe it was two years ago, but the book uh, titled Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation we have someone to thank. Um, he died just shy of 20 years um, around the time when um, when the, uh, the ground uh, first broke for um, getting the uh, project going. But George Washington died in 1799, and he was a firm believer in canals. He had been a part of the uh, Potomac Canal Company that was a short-lived uh, company that um, did have some did have some success, but it did not sustain anywhere uh, of long-term success like the Erie Canal did. But we have George Washington to thank because he knew he knew firmly that if America was going to uh, be a prosperous nation, it needed to be able people needed to come together to find solutions to um, transport goods further inland. And not just transport those goods further inland, but also help uh, people, enable people to go westward to uh, establish settlements in what we now know as uh, the present-day Midwest or the old Northwest uh, Territory. But doing so to help uh, better enhance America's national security. Washington believed that there needed to be one America. There could not be an America where, now trying to get political folks, but... For George Washington, it needed to be an America that was unified, one that did not have a stopping point where where um, the United States ended and a foreign territory was on the opposite side. So whenever we uh, whenever we hear of canals, uh, we do need to thank George Washington, the father of our country, because he firmly believed that canals offered the best means of not only transporting people from point A to point B and establishing new settlements, but getting uh, goods on a mass quantity scale transported from point A to point B. In other words, instead of relying upon you know just a couple of mules transporting um, freight that's close to 300 pounds by land, and all of a sudden you get stuck in bad weather, um, you could be delayed for up to two weeks before the roads are better to uh, navigate. But by going um, through inland waterways like the Erie Canal, not only are you saving on time, but you are also cutting the costs um, in multiple ways. And as we said earlier, thanks to um, inland uh, canal systems, the costs had been reduced anywhere from 50% or more. So for those of you who... Um, want to learn more about why George Washington was so influential with um, getting um, canals, um, with spreading the word on canals, I strongly recommend that you do that. And um, you can also type up the, uh, type up, uh, the Potomac Canal Company um, and also Erie Canal as well. 
I know I might be uh, getting off track, folks, but at the same time, it is important to be reminded of those whom we did not expect who would have uh, served as um, instrumental um, figures uh, when it came to being passionate about something that did help um, America um, improve her uh, transportation status in this case, such as uh, with George Washington in the, in the uh, canals. Now, 16 years, we've got a forward now. We know uh, that the Erie Canal was finally completed in 1825. And that was a landmark um, moment onto itself. But 16 years after the Erie Canal was officially completed, a ship, or perhaps better yet, a steamship, operating as a ship, or perhaps better yet, a steamship, operating as a passenger freighter vessel on the Great Lakes known as the Erie. She was less than five years old, but she became something that represented hope to many whom sailed aboard her, only to be met by tragedy on a scale never encountered before or come the year of 1841. I think we're getting now to that exact moment of what we are going to be discussing in this new um, podcast book topic series, folks. August 9, 1841, just five weeks and one day after America celebrated its 65th birthday as an independent nation, the steamship Erie met a, met a horrific ending. How she met such a tragic ending isn't known by many, but what historians whom have covered this tragedy do know is that the Erie had 343 people on board August 9, 1841, and come late evening, just six miles from shore, her final destination, 254 people perished, leaving only 89 survivors. The hope aspect, or let alone I should say the hope perspective here, is that the Erie was transporting vast numbers of European immigrants to a new world where opportunities were more were more accessible, unlike back home in the old world. Perhaps for so many of these uh, immigrants, all of them, perhaps they were coming to America in search of not just a better life, but to live the American dream that they saw to be fit and uh, relevant, where an American dream had more potential than it obviously did back home in the old world. The tragic perspective must be played out as one where the final leg of a long journey into a new world wasn't meant to be, given something so bad had happened, where everyone involved saw their lives change for better and for worse. Survival and death. Survival, yes, it's great. On one hand, yes, it's a blessing that 89 people did survive. I mean, I guess we could say it's better that... It's better to know that, okay, there were those, that, that there were survivors, but just because those who survived, it didn't mean that they could go on with their lives as though nothing happened. Those whom perished in search of a better life into a new world were European immigrants, primarily from Germany and Switzerland, whom knew exactly what America's old Northwest, aka present day Midwest, represented. 
being a better life in search of something so grand, the American dream. A better life was awaiting the masses, folks. But come August 9, 1841, the Erie went down, and so did the fate of those lost on the lakes. Well, maybe I shouldn't say on the lakes, but on the lake. Being um, on the lake, I'm sure some of you are wondering, uh, could it be a great lake? Yes. And I'll um, tell you all that here uh, momentarily. Yes, we can all agree that America um, had grown immensely since uh, first declaring her independence from England on July 4th, 1776, when her population stood around 2.5 million, only to see the population soar to just over 17 million come the start of 1840. That's quite a, um, a spike in uh, population size, to say the least. Although uh, America had turned uh, 65 years old on July 4th, 1841, come five weeks and one day later, the young nation would be turned upside down. It wasn't the first time, and nor would it, cer and nor would it certainly not be the last moment in the young republic's existence where tragedy of unspeakable proportions would occur. In order to better understand what happened to the steamship Erie on August 9, 1841, it will require our learning um, various things. Uh, for one, it will, it will require our learning about how elegant of a ship she was in her day. To those whom boarded her on that fateful voyage, from European immigrants to individuals already living in the, in the vicinities where Erie's route took passengers to and from. What caused the ship to wreck and whether or not anything could have been done to avoid the all-out inevitable, to recovering bodies of the deceased, including costs of the tragedy onto itself, or I should say costs of the tragedy onto itself. And lastly, for what and who was to be directly blamed behind such catastrophic loss of life never seen before and by 1841 along America's vast waters, most notably the Great Lakes. 1841, a year which did see a unique first occur with three commander-in-chiefs serving the highest office in the United States, being uh, that of the presidency, but 1841 was also a tragic year. Well, I mean, 1841 produced a year of unspeakable tragedy, a first where over 200 people died on a single night. In this case, 254 people, folks, on the night of August 9, 1841. 254 people died on a single night given America was not even at war. But yet large, immigrant, but yet large numbers of immigrants never, lived, never got to live to see their true dreams be fulfilled. In other words, they were living in the present moment. In other words, they, they knew that they weren't far from their final destination, but they never got to see the end. In other words, they never got that opportunity to, um, to depart from the steamship Erie to set foot on new soil, knowing that this is where their new um, 
their new home was going to be. Not just short term, but long term. So the title to our uh, new uh, book topic podcast series is going to be the following, folks. Disaster on Lake Erie. The 1841, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie by Elvin F. Oikel. That's an interesting last name, but that's the author of this book, folks. Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie. I hope all of you will be intrigued um, with this uh, series, with this uh, book topic uh, series. I believe it's going to be a good one. And I'm sure some of you are wondering now, you know, hey, Kirk, you know, you've talked about some other uh, shipwreck series uh, from the past where it involved weather. Is, is the shipwreck of the Erie the same thing? Well, if I told you all now, you all would probably be, be saying the following. Then what's the point in going forward if it was weather related, given that we've, you know, talked about some uh, previous ones that were weather related? And don't get me wrong, uh, learning about shipwrecks pertaining to weather related situations is nothing boring. It's nothing dull. But even those um, situations have stories to tell upon themselves. This particular one uh, was. It was interesting to me because, for one, I had never heard about this before. And secondly, how the ship um, wrecked, to me, was just, um, it was heart-wrenching. So I'm sure many of you are wondering now, how did 254 people lose their lives? And how were there, thing, were there measures that could have been prevented to have avoided this? Well, as we go into... Um, this uh, series, we're going to learn all those questions. We're going to learn the who, the what, the why. It's fair to say that we should be detectives, but then again, this won't be the first time, and nor will it be the last, that we will be um, our own detectives as we are um, embarking upon uh, the, the truth, the real story behind uh, what happened in this um, situation. Well, when I'm on the air again uh, next time, we are going to uh, be learning about... Um, about the Erie, and I'm, and I'm sure, well, I mean, that's a given, but what all are we going to be learning about with the Erie? Well, we are going to be learning about what is called the Elegant Erie. So, in other words, we're going to be learning about the year that she was um, built. We're going to learn um, where she uh, hails from. We're going to learn um, a little bit of, about the city, not only where the steamship hails from, but what was going on in the city, what the city was known for. We even will learn about the differences between steamboats and steamships, because I'm sure some of you were uh, wondering early on, you know, hey, we mentioned something about steamboat, and then we mentioned something about steamships. There's got to be some difference between the two. Well, we will talk about that. Uh, there will be some other th unique things that we will talk about as well. But again, thank you for being such uh, great uh, listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be. Uh, but you all have helped um, make all of this happen. So um, I am forever grateful to all of you, my uh, fellow 101 uh, History Podcast listeners. Take care for now, and wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe.